is it feasible to have these robots roaming around the stores, you know, while while customers are there? And in the end, you might you better find out fast if that's a good value proposition before you spend a lot of money on it. Because in the end, you might decide that some things are best done by humans. Welcome to Transform It Forward, the podcast that gives you an inside look into the before and after some of the world's most effective transformation processes. I'm your host, Paul French. Today, we thought to have an episode that covers some key topics of the past 12 months and talk with some smart people about what might be the next big thing in the coming year. I sit down with my colleagues, Vince Padua, the Executive Vice President and Chief Information and Technology Officer at Axway, as well as Brian Otten, VP of Digital Transformation Catalysts. We'll be looking back at some of the high points of the past year, and more importantly, look ahead to 2023. We didn't constrain ourselves to any particular topic or category. It was a great conversation. Enjoy our end of year panel discussion. So it's that time of year where everyone wants to present predictions and show how smart we are, try to provide some insights based upon years of experience. And so with me, I have Vince and Brian, uh, like we did last year, and, and just talk about what we think 2023 is going to look like from a technology and an innovation uh, and an operational excellence perspective. Vince, why don't you just start? What what do you think the view of 2023 is going to look like for companies now as they confront the realities of rising interest rates and a looming recession and you know potentially having a, a different employee base than they might have had six months or a year ago? Uh, thanks, Paul. Yeah, I think uh, if I were to summarize your question, it would be uncertainty. And I think enterprises and, and businesses, uh, whether you know in the states or around the globe, are, are facing a whole lot of uncertainty with the economy, with the way in which we expect to be working, with you know balancing innovation with um, cost savings and efficiency, et cetera. So when when we look at how do we uh, coach folks on on dealing with uncertainty? It's uh, in many ways kind of going back to the basics, kind of going back to you know what got your business to where it is, um, kind of the root of whether it's you know your product discipline, whether it's uh, refocusing you know your strategy and ultimately your vision. But I think the 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 tone for twenty twenty three will be uncertainty. And so, Brian, are you seeing that the uncertainty and, and how are people reacting to the uncertainty when you're talking to CIOs and head architects and things like that? Are they trying to just power through with existing plans or are there being breaks being put on and trying to reset and refocus to more uh, more value that's maybe a little closer to access? I think, yeah, I think the, the COVID effect is now kind of real to see. Um, so people can kind of take a step back now. We're not, we're not completely out of COVID, but... You know, I think that forced a lot of companies to think about uh, how they balance innovation with optimization. So I think one of the big themes is going to be optimizing, whether it's their cloud strategy, where they thought, well, my first step is migration to the cloud, but how do, now how do I optimize that as they start to see the, what the real costs are of going to the cloud? And it's the same all the way through software engineering uh, with platform engineering coming in. So I, I think the focus is really optimization um, with without you know sacrificing some of that speed of, of innovation so what do you mean by optimization is it really the the idea that we were going to spread ourselves across three or four major public clouds and all these different in, uh, regions and now we've got to sort of narrow that focus or is it about the product side of things what we're going to put in the cloud or talk a little bit about you know how those priorities are actually 
being manifest in, in terms of optimization? Yeah, I think it's both things because, well, you know, that, that, um, you know, what, what I deal with at, uh, in my everyday work is, is the over and above the technology things. So how can the organization structure itself better to, you know, optimize things and not just, just the technology. So I think a lot of disappointment takes place when, you know, new technologies come in, um, and then, you know, you don't, you don't see the return on investment or you don't see the adoption, right? So focusing more to the consumer side of the technology, but, but how do we get that stuff in the hands of closer to the business people? Right. And it takes, it takes a change in, in the way that's, you know, organizations behave and the way they're structured and the way their mindset is. So it's, it's really over and above the technology, um, where, where a lot of the optimization has to take place. Um, because, you know, optimizing technology is a little bit easier. It's not always easy, but I think optimizing the organization is, is a lot more difficult. So that's where I think a lot of the focus is, is going to be. And Vince, a lot of those cloud choices are long tail choices, right? Because it takes time to move things in and move things out. As much as it was a great thing to talk about years ago, like, look, we can spin up instances instantly and move between clouds. It doesn't really work nearly that simply, right? So so how are you seeing the, the, the people that you talk to think differently about using the cloud over the course of the next couple of years? Right. I think uh, just to, to touch on, you know, what Brian uh, highlighted regarding optimization, right? So, th so the way I think about it is, you know, optimization is, you know, how do you do do better or perform better given the current constraints that you've got? Whether the current constraints are, are resources or the current constraints could be your present investment in cloud A, B, or C, or some hybrid of those things. And the optimization part is like, are we really going to, we're going to really work given our investment to get the payoffs that we've been looking for, uh, whatever that may be, whether that is we're able to get products to market faster, whether we're able to reduce our operating expense given the numbers of users of our products and platforms, but we're going to do it within the constraints of the investment that we have already made. And then the other side of it is is kind of the innovation piece, right? Which is like, how do I break out of my current constraints and ultimately do something better? And I think the 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 innovation side of um, where I think we, we we see customers going from cloud A to cloud B or trying to find some hybrid of the two where we're going to take best of breed from uh, cloud A and we're going to take best of breed from cloud B and we're going to use some of our own innovation and insights to figure out a way to make those things work together. I, in my opinion, I think the that part of it uh, will slow uh, rather significantly sort of the, the best of breed approach uh, in 2023. Uh, and instead, I think businesses will will look more at, look, we've made our investments here, um, whether they were strategic or as sometimes tactical, and we need to figure out what the payoff is before we go take another bet or place another investment elsewhere for yet another promise uh, of best in breed and you know the 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 ultimate and sort of hybrid uh, multi cloud uh, type approaches. Mm -hmm. Do you think that uh, customers' views of what those um those selected uh, cloud ecosystems can do the best of brand type approach or the, is there going to be a massive sense of disillusionment when they realize that it really was really designed to be a best of breed scenario or do you think that people will just sort of reset themselves into what they might innovate themselves versus what they might consume from that cloud provider the the cloud providers would prefer that you stay in their ecosystem right to stay predominantly within their four walls or or within their uh, their network uh, of data centers and their applications or 
uh, their APIs and all that stuff, right? Um, they've been moving towards enabling more sort of uh, collaboration and sort of hybrid work uh, and integration across them. But I wouldn't be surprised if there's a bit of a pullback on that uh, going into to next year. Again, just for the, you've placed your bets. We want to be able to offer you as a cloud provider as much as you you can use and as much as you can get and ultimately optimize with your investment with us. While best of breed may have been the option, i.e. through growth or because we were maybe lagging behind six months or a year in terms of our roadmap, but all things being equal, uh, I think the the cloud vendors and I think from a an investment standpoint, kind of staying where you are or optimizing where you are is is where a lot of, I think, customers and vendors will will land next year. So, Brian, when you think about 2023, what do you think is that that number one thing on your list? That's going to be the uh, prediction that is guaranteed to come true. Well, I I have one that I like better, but I, if you're asking what what I really think is going to come true, I think um, one of the big things in especially in, in the software engineering space was DevOps, right? So I think one of the things that's definitely going to come true, I think, is that you're going to see this move from just DevOps to what they're calling or what what we call platform engineering. What you're realizing now is that you know, you're having to ha- create a platform of platforms within your organization. And DevOps teams kind of came from, usually well, from what I've seen um, in the organizations that I work with, um, they're, they're still kind of disjointed. Or it was left to one team that was kind of the pioneers to modernize the way that their development pipelines worked. Um, it kind of reminds me of the way integration that has evolved in organizations or data integration or data management, where you have kind of a centralized team that leads the way. And then before you know it, you have a giant bottleneck in the organization because they're the ones who run the integration technology. They're the ones who brought it in, whose heads are on the block to making it work. And then everyone's quite happy to just push that to them. But as we know- The center of excellence concept, Yeah, the center right? of excellence yeah. and mm-hmm. and the business- uh, again, kind of gets a little bit disappointed because things can't move fast enough. Um, these people aren't sometimes as close to the business as they need to be. In other words, they can't really collaborate well and anticipate the types of capabilities that the organization needs. Um, so I think being able to take that kind of disjointed DevOps where you've got these pockets of DevOps, you maybe even have a DevOps um, framework and you have DevOps tools and platforming tools from Jira all the way through to, um, you know, your, your deployment, uh, technologies. Um, I think it's going to be more to say, well, we need platform engineer. We need teams who can use the platform, adopt the platform and do a lot of this for themselves in a consistent way. You still have the governance issue of our teams actually taking advantage of the technology in a, in a consistent way. Um, you know, across the organization. But yeah, I think platform engineering kind of kind of makes it easier for uh, multiple teams across the organization to get in on it and, and make use of it. And of course, if that happens, you can measure the effect of it better. So it's it's interesting. If we, if we deconstruct that, there's a couple of pieces in there. Uh, there's never enough humans to do all the work that needs to be done, right? Um, some of that work is duplicative and maybe should be automated out is, you know, the beauty of a DevOps kind of thing. Um, Vince, this kind of goes to one of yours. When you, you look at, you know, RPA and 
the idea of how you can you can create some level of automation to fix those those problems, but it's it's lost a little of its luster, right? It has. You know, RPA uh, for those listening, right? Robotic uh, process automation, right? The idea of taking you know small tasks uh, that maybe humans would do, like let's say uh, approving an invoice or generating a, a purchase order or updating um, you know the inventory status, et cetera, and uh, having you know software. Uh, or you know, software robots uh, handle the process of of doing that work, which you know, for for small skills uh, or for small tasks, um, there's a lot of opportunity to to do that kind of work. But what Brian is is highlighting uh, really on the platform engineering side versus DevOps, or really what in my view is sort of the continuation of DevOps to kind of uh, this sort of next logical step, which is to think of this not as how do we optimize our build pipelines or our build to operational run and deploy pipelines, but to how do we create that sort of governance and that consistency and the the really how we work, which is more than just um, you know tagging branches of code or uh, running um, you know unit tests or system wide tests uh, in um, the the platform uh, itself. It's more for the you know, how do we really think about uh, our practices for visibility of our applications or our platforms? Really, how do we think about our approach to authorization and authentication uh, throughout everything that we're building, such that when one group builds it one way and the other group builds something else, uh, we have a, a whole set of consistent ways of ultimately approaching it. So I, I think RPA, you know, a couple of years back, it had a great run. Uh, it rode a lot of the, the, the tailwinds of automation. Which in the end, that is what software is, right? It, it really is automation, um, whether that's spreadsheets to presentations to uh, DevOps tools, right? It's all automation in one form or another. But I think where it starts to lose its foster is, okay, at what scale, right? Because soon you'll have five little robots and then 10 and then 100 and then 1,000. And then you start to have all sorts of uh, management issues. You have all sorts of security issues. You have all sorts of, um, you know, uh, versioning and... Um, uh, compatibility issues. So if, if one person leaves who created the robots and somebody else comes in and the robot continues to operate, well, and it's starting to approve invoices or, or what have you, and you don't know how to go stop it or turn it off or what have, or whatever, then there's other issues. And so I, I think the, the step back is to look at it now more holistically instead of just these one-off tasks to really what is it as a, a platform end-to-end -end versus you know any one sort of specific finite thing. They're still machines, right? When, when, you, when you look at it, and um, it reminds me of you know one large retailer, probably you all know who, who they are, but you think about what what humans can actually do better. So sometimes the assumption is that, you know, you can automate a process and a robot can do it. Let's take, I don't know, scanning the shelves of a supermarket to replenish inventory, right? Seems like a great use case for for that. But then actually looking at it, there's the mechanical aspect of it there's is it feasible to have these robots roaming around the stores you know while while customers are there and in the end you might you better find out fast if that's a good value proposition before you spend a lot of money on it because in the end you might decide that some things are best done by humans now i know i don't sound like a real technology advocate saying that but that's the kind of process that value proposition and you know failing fast as we always say to to go through in order to understand what really is good for RPA and maybe things that should be left alone and, and let the poor humans <laughs> do it. 
but it's it's an interesting you know we've all been doing technology a long time right so so there's been plenty of of operational efficiency driven by software that a lot of people don't see but over the course of the last couple of weeks chat gpt is you know made its way into the mainstream conversation and everybody wants to log in and you know, watch it, write a love song, you know, about cars or whatever the case may be. Right. And so, so how does that, what is going to be the role of, of AI and ML in the mainstream sense over the course of the next year or two? So, I mean, you hit on what I think is probably, at least in my mind, some of the most exciting technology uh, that I've seen in a long time, a decade. And as somebody who worked on IBM Watson in the early days, uh, seeing what chat GPT can do, it is, uh, in my opinion, indistinguishable for magic. Uh, it is, uh, really remarkable and it, it opens up now a whole can of interesting topics. Not that there are topics that we haven't had to deal with before, whether it's plagiarism or, um, you know, what, you know, kids, you know, writing a, uh, a position paper on, you know, world war two or some other theme, um, how they use something like chat GPT to help them do that. Um, or even write the full thing for them. Um, I think it it opens up a whole host of very interesting questions, as well as you know the way that it can augment the way any of us do our job, whether that is give me the pros and cons uh, of RPA, right? Tell me how RPA is different than uh, business process automation or these other things. That it is it provides a whole host of shortcuts. The challenge with it, obviously, is um, unlike searching the web where there are links to where the sources come from. We don't really know where chat GPT is getting its information from. We really don't know how it synthesized the information, where it pulled uh, the sources from, and ultimately how it came up to what it gave you as responses to your your query or to your, your chat. But there's, in my opinion, a lot of what it's chat GPT has brought forward beyond its sort of, um, you know, it, its ability to, like you said, write, you know, love stories about fishing or, you know, whenever, um, there's a lot that it can offer and its ability to kind of do it in a chat style way. Uh, I think, you know, when we think about how we interact in, in collaborative tools, uh, that everybody has in the enterprise, uh, how it can serve as an aid, uh, and a helpful hand, um, in either understanding complex topics or simply giving you definitions of, acronyms, uh, if you're in a chat that maybe you didn't know and it, and it, uh, or surfacing that up to you or even providing you, you know, possible next actions, uh, to consider, or would you like me to add this to your to-do list? Uh, since somebody, you know, said your name and, and they offered something for you to go do. I think there's a lot of applications for that as a technology going into next year. And I think it's, it's one of the more exciting areas, uh, of AI and ML, even though we've talked about AI and ML for a very long time. Um, this is probably one of the the most sort of ubiquitous applications of the technology that everybody from a first grader or even younger, whether they want to, you know, ask it to draw a picture of, you know, Vince fishing, um, you know, on a beach, wherever, uh, to, you know, writing position papers or, you know, pro cons or analysis of, of some other topic. So really interesting. And I think there's, we're just now at the, at the tip of the iceberg for really, what is it going to mean? And from a practical everyday standpoint, um, even if you set aside sort of the, the more sensitive topics around, um, you know, uh, racism or, uh, other sorts of things that people may be putting into these, um, type tools, uh, for answers and whatnot. Yeah. Brian, have you heard any, uh, what, what, are, what are the, you know, the executives and the customers that you talk to, how, wh- how do they see a world with, um, uh, 
AI and ML? Is it going to be pervasive at some point for them or do they still think it's a parlor trick for a little while longer? Yeah, I, I still think, uh, you know, there are pockets of, of that kind of development going on, but I, kind of to what Vince said, and now I'm thinking about Vince fishing on a beach and writing a love song at the same time. Yeah. But um, well, the last 10 minutes of this will be Vince telling us a love story about <laughs> fishing. So I'm yeah. very excited about that. Right. right. Um, no, but you know what? It's It still comes down to the data. So I think there's always this, you know, fascination with, with the new technology. So machine learning, AI, the, the tool sets come in, the tool suites come in. You have to train these models, right? Um, that That's how it works. You know, you have to build a machine learning models and then train them and you train them with data, right? Now, it's not just the data, it's the context around the data. And one of the per- pervasive problems of data management over the last, you know, 25, 30 years has been, how do we retain that context with, with the data? So I think, um, you know, AI and ML gives us that opportunity to kind of go way back into the semantic data land and try and understand how can we actually get the context along with the insights that AI and ML are giving us, right? Because it's, it's, it's really, uh, the context is everything. Um, so I think that's going to be one of the problems to solve. Um, that's probably why a lot of organizations, you know, are going slowly with it because it is difficult to provide access to that kind of data in a consistent way and retain retain that context in order to train those those machine learning models. Yeah, it's uh, it's going to be a fa- it, it 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 became very real for a lot of people when they see this, right? And uh, and I think it it shows a wonderful promise for what it can be. It's going to change. You know, I have a 16 year old son. It's going to change education like crazy, mm-hmm. right? Because because yeah. now, I mean, yeah, they still it still writes a bit like an eighth grader right now, but it isn't going to be long mm-hmm. as it continues to learn. You know, we're yep. we're all going to be terrified for the day. It becomes sentient, and we're all subservient to the to the bots. But um, <laughs> so both of you guys in your predictions uh, t- uh, talked with sim- similarity, but with a slightly different perspective. So I'm just going to kind of open it up to talk about marketplaces, right? And 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 thinking about platforms and ecosystems in the context of of, of how people are going to take these digital transformations that have been these little point things and maybe didn't really get off the ground and then elevate them to a level where they can really start to deliver value. Brian, why don't you start? Well, yeah, I mean, again, I'm going to come back to the organization. So, <clears throat> You know, marketplace technology or digital asset management in marketplaces or offering digital product marketplaces, it also comes along with this organizational change. So a lot of organizations are not ready um, from an organizational standpoint because they really haven't made that switch to the product-centric organization. Um, and I think I'm starting to see it. I'm starting to see large enterprises not organizing their technology teams by, you know, the system that they manage, you know, or the, the back end thing when we've got our SAP team, when we got this team and we've got a, that other team, it's really starting to move along the lines of, we have a set of capabilities, those capabilities, um, we offer to our customers and our partners as digital products. And those teams take ownership and start to do that. So I think one of the prerequisites for having a marketplace is, is having that product centric culture and organizing again along those lines um but yeah i think you know it's it's once you have that then you have the other problem of now we have a whole bunch of stuff throughout the enterprise all of our digital assets how do we get how do we get that in a state ready to package up I and mean, we think about as digital assets and then 
being able to offer a product, how can we easily bundle and unbundle those things? Um, you know, you've got to know, you've got to have a, a good inventory. You've got to know where those things are, what they're doing, um, and and how to do that. So I think that's another prerequisite for for doing that, for offering you know a digital marketplace that actually makes sense to your consumers, where they can go in and self serve and and discover what they need and, and grab and go. Mm-hmm. Vince, what do you see next year? Well, to, to extend on the, the marketplace idea, um, you know, the, if what was, so when I think of a marketplace, right, it, uh, it's certainly a place where, you know, two entities, whoever the provider is or producer and the consumer can come together and, and agree to do some type of transaction, whether that is, I'm going to you know, in exchange for some some economic value, I'm going to give you a product or a good or or a service, right? And and certainly, as businesses have been on this digital transformation for some time, um, you know, we see the ongoing move towards more revenue as a percentage of total revenue for an enterprise uh, becoming more and more of a digital stream. And so, it seems like it was going to be inevitable that a, a digital marketplace uh, would become a a natural step in enterprises evolution towards uh, digital transformation. And that one gives them more reach, right? So when more of your revenue is becoming digital, having a marketplace where you can buy and sell digital goods um, is certainly um, very helpful. Uh, And now that things are becoming more standardized, certainly with cloud, certainly with APIs in the way in which the transactions will actually work, whether that is in how you buy uh, and procure or how you use and consume, uh, those interfaces and those capabilities are becoming more and more standardized uh, across the industry, whether that is, with, let's say, within banking, where there are uh, many standards uh, being uh, created to facilitate the exchange of information in a banking context. Same thing in healthcare uh, to protect uh, you know, people like us, uh, individuals, uh, protecting our data, protecting our privacy, uh, et cetera. And so I think marketplaces are a very uh, natural step uh, in this evolution as businesses become you know, more digital. And just to go back to and connect that to the very beginning, where we're talking about optimization, right? A lot of businesses have been on this cloud digital API journey for some time. And now the the question of is, we got to figure out a way to optimize this, right? We got to figure out how to get the, a return from this. It's not just build it and, and they will come, but how do we take these things that we wanted consumption, make them products and have them actually affect our business and hopefully, you know, grow our share of business uh, from a digital means. And marketplaces are a very natural place, um, sort of in that evolution. So, Brian, uh, anyone top of mind that uh, you think is a good a good guess for twenty twenty three or a good prediction for twenty twenty three that we didn't talk about? Um, well, one of the things we haven't talked about is this notion of uh, the digital twin. So that's the be- being able to take a physical um, product or process and then having a digital version of that that you know replicates which makes it easy for you to test simulate um you know the impact or the results or the efficacy of that of that um product and i think it's kind of like the evolution in many ways of you know the internet of things right so being able to take a thing um with sensors and and being able to get all the data and extract all the data and without all of the cost associated with that and you know the complexity associated with that and having a digital version of that. So I think that's one thing that's that's really, really interesting, seeing a lot of companies talking about how can they they can enable this kind of digital twin framework or uh, you know set of technologies where 
they can reduce the cost by you know doing a lot of that kind of simulation for um, even physical products in the digital world. Um, it's pretty interesting. I, I came from the background of market analysis, my very first technology job. And I think that's going to spawn a lot of new ways of doing digital product intelligence as well, um, because that's something that I don't think a lot of companies have really um, gotten right or even found ways to do in the past. You know, it was easier to do that in the physical world, in the bricks and mortar world, is to get you know good product intelligence on what your consumers are doing, how they're interacting um, with your products. Um, but actually, in the digital world, it's even better because you have a lot more uh, insight um, digital interaction insight into the way that your customers are interacting with your products. And something like Digital Quinn, Twin could combine those those two things. I mean, in the, in the past, you'd sell a product, they would fly off your shelf, and then who knows what, what the customer is doing with it afterwards. Are they getting value with it? Uh, are they, you know, are they getting what they thought they were going to get? Usually it's only the form of a negative review, <laughs> you know, or a complaint uh, for your support you know, team. Uh, and, and you can't really get that insight into the value the real value that someone's deriving from it. So I think I think digital twins are really interesting, interesting, um, you know, uh, thing that's on the horizon for for twenty twenty three. Vince, I'm not even going to ask you about product telemetry. I know that's a whole different conversation for another time. But uh, what do you um, anything that we left out for twenty twenty three that you think is a is, is something that's very much real? I think uh, next year we'll continue to see. Um, this ongoing disruption across, let's call it supply chains, right? They can be digital supply chains and then certainly the physical supply chains. I think with the 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 economic uncertainty and the growing cost uh, of capital, I think it will be uh, more and more difficult and challenging for um, you know businesses that were operating on thin margins to continue to survive uh, in this environment uh, next year. And that will cause uh, an ongoing disruption. I mean, we've been under a disruption uh, at the beach since the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, in some instances, we continue to be in a disruption. And I think next year it will uh, return back to uh, a state where we were, you know, um, where we had, you know, ships stuck all over the place and unable to get goods products here or there. And it'll be not because of a lockdown, but because operating a business is just simply going to get more expensive next year. Uh, given the uncertainty and given uh, the cost of capital. And so certainly, you know, using technology um, to facilitate automation, certainly using technology um, to, you know, uh, develop uh, partner relationships uh, where you can be a bit more agile and a bit more flexible, I think will be beneficial to to those um, that may face this type of disruption next year. Yeah. And I would say that that goes right in line with, would be my one prediction. I think that the the best companies uh, we're all going to have to deal with this, with rising interest rates and and um, and, the, and the, just the overall access to capital, not even the cost of it. When you right. think about the, the freezing up of the bond markets and and uh, certainly the equity markets, I think that the best companies are going to figure out how to use this as a catalyst to actually make the changes that they really wanted to make, whether that's around the people and the business structure. You know, MIT calls it organizational surgery. There, there's a lot of different ways that people are going to look at this, and instead of saying. Let's you know just accept the pain and just hold on. I think that the best companies are going to try to accept the pain, but but really use it as a jumping off point to what they want to be for the next ten years. And um, I think that's what we all have to look forward to. So I will thank you guys very much for your your uh, your generous time today. Um, it's been a great year. I think next year 
is going to be really interesting. Now, you live in interesting times, as they say, and I think we are we are definitely there. So Vince and Brian, thanks for joining. Thank you, Thank you Paul. Yeah, thanks. Another great discussion in the books, which brings us to the end of Transform It Forward Season 3. Here are a few of my key takeaways from this panel discussion. First, uncertainty is the only constant. Just as in the past few years have been turbulent times, to say the least, 2023 will likely continue this theme. Rising interest rates, intense competition. Vince noted that this will be a good time for leaders to really zero in on the overall vision and strategy for their company so they can stay focused on what's truly important. Second, balancing innovation with optimization will be crucial. Brian made a great point about companies learning to balance rapid pace of evolution with the need for operational excellence in everything that they do. Although things are moving fast, they will need to be a strong focus on optimizing technology products, performance, and the organization as a whole. Finally, Brian predicted that although people have talked about it for years, the idea of digital twins will emerge in 2023. Referring to the act of creating a replicated digital version of a physical product or process, it makes it easy for companies to test results and extract data through simulation. Brian believes more companies will be enabling this framework in the near future to reduce cost and speed up the testing process. I want to share another big thank you to our panelists today, Brian and Vince. You've helped us shed light on some exciting trends we can expect to see in 2023. And thank you to the loyal listeners of Transform It Forward. We appreciate you tuning in and supporting the podcast. I hope you have a happy new year. Thanks for listening to Transform It Forward, the podcast that gives you an inside look at some of the world's most effective transformation processes. If you like this episode, please be sure to give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I'm your host, Paul French, and I look forward to being with you next time. Transform It Forward is brought to you by Axway, who believes that in order to create the most value for customers, partners, and employees, you need to open everything by securely integrating and moving data across a complex world of old and new technologies.